0: I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of The Right Practice.
1: And I'm Alice Sudlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Right Practice and a StoryGrid-certified editor.
0: As always, today we're going to start by putting a character to the test... Alice and I look at a character in a book we're reading or film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice?
1: We're talking about Lydia Bennett from Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen.
0: After that, we're talking to New York Times bestselling author Christina McMorris. Christina is best known for her novel Sold on a Monday, which is set during the Great Depression and is about a newspaper reporter who takes a photograph of two boys holding a sign, two children for sale. The photograph kicks off a series of events that leads to a romance with a young woman at the paper a run-in with the mob, and a terrible quest to get to the bottom of the fate of the two children in the photograph. In this interview, we talk about how McMorris got interested in the Great Depression, the real photo that she based the novel on, and how she eventually got to meet one of the subjects in that photo. The last part of our show is our character study, where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. Thanks for listening to The Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though, so you'll have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode 13. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 13 to get a free prize related to this episode. All right, Alice, it's time for our character test portion of the show. Today, we're examining Lydia Bennett from Pride and Prejudice.
1: So I think most people are familiar with Pride and Prejudice, at least to some degree. Either you've read it dozens of times, like me. I
0: don't think you can say that you've read it multiple dozens of times.
1: I mean, there are very, very, very few books for which I would make this claim. For Pride and Prejudice, I would make this claim. Do you know
0: how many times a dozen is?
1: Yes. It is it's 12, 12 times. times. It is so 12 you would times. have to read
0: it to do dozens. It would have to be at least 24 times.
1: I believe I've read this book at least 24 times. This book is one I, of I my comfort books where whenever I am feeling a weird way about the world and I just need something to come back to, I return to Pride and Prejudice. I have multiple copies of it, paperback, hardback. I've had the audio book. I've seen many adaptations. <laughs> I just finished <laughs> at reading- least two. At, No, at least like seven. <laughs> I just finished reading an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that's set in modern day Pakistan which is what brought this to mind for me because I love it so much
0: well I like it too but I don't think that I like it enough to lie and say that I've read it 24 times
1: I'm not lying here. I can quote along. I've I've read it. I've listened to the audiobook so many times that I quote along with the audiobook with the inflection that my specific reader has on every line. I hear it in my head. I know it so well. I've also, I mean, I've watched movies. I've read adaptations in books. I've seen the the stage play. You really like (laughs)
0: Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I,
1: I do. I have explained it in great detail to friends and family who ask brief questions about the plot and then regret it because I won't stop talking about it. I, well, love I Pride hope and Prejudice. we don't
0: regret choosing this character to test.
1: <laughs> My goal is to make you love Pride and Prejudice so much that now you have to go read it or reread it if you've already read it. So. Here's a brief refresher if you haven't immersed yourself in Regency England quite so deeply. So there are five daughters in the Bennett family. And their mother's goal is to get them all well married off. Jane, the eldest, meets and then loses and then meets again a wealthy, handsome bachelor named Bingley. Elizabeth, the second daughter and the protagonist of the story, meets an even more handsome and even more wealthy bachelor named Darcy. And Lydia, who is the youngest daughter at age 15, meets an even more handsome but far less wealthy and less scrupulous man named Wickham. Now, this book is over 200 years old, so if you haven't read it, you've had your chance to avoid spoilers, and this is going to be a spoiler-heavy show.
0: So, I don't think I need to ask this question, but we ask it every week. Why did you choose this character to test?
1: If you couldn't tell. I love Pride and Prejudice a lot. And I think that Jane Austen was a genius author. But also, I think that we talk a lot about protagonists on this show. And I think that Elizabeth is fantastic. And I also really enjoyed hearing Sean Coyne talk a few episodes ago about what he appreciates about Darcy, which was surprisingly similar to what he appreciates about Hannibal Lecter.
0: Also a little disturbing.
1: Slightly, yes. But I also wanted to take a look at a side character as well, because stories are made up of a lot of characters, not just a single protagonist. And I wanted to look at what does it look like to create an interesting side character who hopefully passes the test. I feel like I might be showing a little bias here. Am I showing some bias? Not at all. (laughs) Perfect.
0: All right. Let's put Lydia to the test using our four criteria for what makes an interesting character. Starting with her goal, does Lydia have a goal? And what is her goal?
1: She does. Her goal, her biggest, most core goal is just to have fun, to enjoy life without responsibilities. One of the things that she wants to do is to get married because that is What has been set up for her is success in this world. That is how a woman survives in this world. And also that's where she sees a whole new world of opportunity for fun. She's also, as the fifth daughter, pretty overshadowed by her sisters. And so she wants to, in some way, overshadow them. She would love to get married first. She would love to get married to the best husband. But really her goal is in every scene, in every part of the story, to have fun and to enjoy life.
0: She's pretty competitive about some things that you probably shouldn't be competitive about.
1: She is. It's true. It's true. Who can get married first is perhaps not a healthy race. Right. But
0: who can get married youngest at 15 years old?
1: Also not a healthy race. Also, also not ideal. But that's her goal. All
0: right. So that's her goal. Does Lydia have to overcome challenges to accomplish that goal?
1: She does. So, like I just said, she's the youngest daughter, and that means more than just that she's overshadowed by her sisters, she's got a lot of societal structures that dictate how she can operate in this world. And they all do. But as the youngest daughter, she is technically not supposed to get married or even to go out into social gatherings until her older sisters are married first. And at the rate they're going, that's going to take a really long time. So she has these societal structures that have dictated for her a place that feels really limiting. She does not allow herself to be bound by those limits. Uh, She goes to balls, she flirts with men, and she even spoiler alert, but I warned you, gets married before any of her sisters do. So she wins that competition. But she does that all with this disdainful gaze from the broader society. And I would also say that her greatest obstacle isn't a conscious external roadblock that you can view and, and see and that she could identify as an obstacle to her goals, like this dictate that she shouldn't be going to balls until her sisters are married is a an obvious obstacle for her. But her greatest obstacle really is this major problem for her long-term good, even though it's not tangible. It's that her parents are honestly pretty negligent and indulgent with her, and they haven't set her very good boundaries or encouraged her growth in healthy ways. And so she has this flagrant disregard for the advice of mentors around her. And she kind of exists with this sense that her life has no consequences, that she can pursue fun without consequence. And sure, the societal structures that all these women are navigating through are pretty oppressive. But the ways that Elizabeth and Jane and her Aunt Gardner try to guide her are meant for her own good and protection. And because she's not willing or able to see that, she puts herself into risky situations.
0: So that's interesting. Good characters make decisions. Does Lydia make decisions? And can you point to one
1: of them? She does. And I'm going to pull right from the end of the book here. Lydia decides to go on holiday to Brighton with a friend, unsupervised by her family. And while she's there, she decides to elope with Wickham, which is the big, critical decision that she makes in this book. She doesn't know when she makes that decision that he's a bad egg and he has no intention of marrying her and he has every intention of taking advantage of her and then tossing her aside. But even without her having that insight into his character, she does know that she's making a decision that has the potential to be ruinous for herself and for her entire family. She's willing to put her own pursuit of fun and present enjoyment over any long-term view of the world and any care for what's best for the people around her. Because she has this sense of her life having no consequences. And I honestly don't get the impression that she particularly deeply cares about the consequences it could have for her sisters and for her family. She might be maybe a half step more aware of what those consequences could be, but not so aware that she really cares.
0: Okay. So I think we can agree that she makes decisions, but I think you have set yourself up a big challenge here, Alice because our last question is Lydia a character who is empathizable
1: I honestly I would Argue yes. I think that Lydia makes a slew of dumb choices. And I think that she's definitely intended to be a cautionary tale. I think she's this warning of what happens when you pursue your own pleasure and you won't listen to wise advice and you completely sacrifice all the social structures around you. Darcy does eventually make Wickham marry her. But even in that, we all know she's not headed for a happy ending long term. I think that maybe optimistically, I could envision five years of... Deluding herself into a happy marriage, but we know that any longer than that and she's really not going to be in a happy situation. But all that said, I think we can still empathize with her because who hasn't made some dumb choices, especially at age 15? Who hasn't felt overshadowed by someone around them and wanted to prove themselves in some way and maybe become competitive about some things that weren't ever meant to be competitive. Who hasn't wanted to sometimes just throw all decorum aside and ignore social structures and just have fun? I think that she's not a character we would necessarily want to be, and she's probably not a character that we would want to be close friends with. Maybe she's the character we want to have around at a party and then not have to spend much time with after that. But I think she's also a character that we can understand. And I think that that there are elements – of her motivations that are relatable.
0: Well, I give you a begrudging acceptance (laughs) of that answer. All right, last thing, what can we learn from Lydia?
1: Like I said, she's a cautionary tale. So most of what we learn from her is what not to do. Don't ignore wise advice that's meant for your good. Don't pursue your own enjoyment at the expense of everyone around you. Don't abandon long-term thinking for instant gratification and fun. Don't have this this sense of imperviousness to consequences because that's just not reality and long-term it's not going to work out. But I also – as I was thinking about this question, I challenged myself to think about what does she get right – And I think she does get a critique of her society right because it really wasn't set up for her success. As the fifth daughter, she exists in the shadow of her sisters and she pushes boundaries to try to make a place for herself. She doesn't push them in a healthy way that is ultimately successful for her, but she does recognize that there's not a great space for her in the world that she's in. And she decides to make one for herself anyway. And she decides this with this This enthusiasm and confidence that's perhaps ungrounded, but is also maybe a, I don't want to say healthy, but it gives her this positive kind of approach to her society, as opposed to getting frustrated or depressed or really negative about the space that she's in. And I think we see that in some of her other sisters. I think that Mary and Kitty really kind of struggle with their space in society and they really face a lot of disappointment in that. And Lydia, misguided though she is, skirts some of that disappointment with this overconfidence and enthusiasm.
0: Well, that's an interesting point of view that I completely disagree with, (laughs) but we'll let it sit.
1: What is your rebuttal? I'm so curious.
0: Oh, I just don't know if that is her getting it right as much as her, I don't know, being bad.
1: I mean, I'm not saying that things that she does as a recognition of her lack of a space in society are right. I'm just saying that her recognition that there's not a space in the world for her that is very expansive and that if- I don't
0: think- I guess I don't think she actually recognizes it.
1: Mm, That's fair. I think she
0: would have flaunted whatever rules were out there.
1: That's fair. Even if they were healthy. That's fair. There is some- it is hard to argue for Lydia having much critical thought at any point in this book.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, that's it for Lydia. Let's get into our interview with Christina. All right. Welcome to the Character Test Show. Christina, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I'd love to start with a section from your novel, sold on a Monday. And I believe that this novel was on the New York Times bestsellers list for 20 straight weeks. Is that right?
2: It is, which has been absolutely surreal. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's just crazy. But maybe you could start just by reading that section from your novel.
2: Sure thing. So, the section that uh, I would love to read is from the very beginning of the book, obviously a good place to start. This is chapter one. It was their eyes that first drew Ellis in. Seated on the front porch of a weathered gray farmhouse, among the few homes lining the road surrounded by hay fields, two boys were pitching pebbles at a tin can. Ages six and eight at most, they wore no shoes or shirts, only patched overalls exposing much of their fair skin tinted by grime and summer sun. The two had to be brothers. With their lean frames and scraggly copper hair, they look like the same kid at different stages of life. Another drop of sweat slid from Ellis's fedora, down his neck, and into his starched collar. Even without his suit jacket, his whole shirt clung from the damn humidity. He moved closer to the house and raised his camera. Natural scenic shots were his usual hobby, but he adjusted the lens to bring the kids into focus. With them came a sign a raw wooden slat with jagged edges. It bowed slightly against the porch as if reclining under the weight of the afternoon heat. The offer it bore, scrawled in chalk, didn't fully register until Ellis snapped the photo. Two children for sale. There you go. There we go. It's
0: a great place to start.
2: You can tell I just kind of got up over here on the West Coast. My mouth is still trying to work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. So this novel is based in the 1930s during the Great Depression And it it's kind of begins with these two children and then moves on from there and kind of takes us on a tour, both through the lows of this period and also some of the highs through Prohibition, the beginnings of the mob, and also sort of the golden age of newspapers. Can you talk about what fascinates you about this period and why you chose to base your story in it?
2: Absolutely. Well, there was a real photograph that inspired the book that I happened across one day. And it stopped me cold because it was a photo, as I'm sure you probably already know, there are four children on their own stoop in Chicago. And there is a mother that is turned away from the camera, seemingly in shame, and a sign that reads, four children for sale inquire within. And it was a black and white photograph. It came out in the Vedette Messenger in Indiana back in 1948. Now when I first saw the photograph, it looks like a photo taken from the Great Depression. I think we often think of post World War II as being a very prosperous, parade-filled time for the country and of course it wasn't for everyone and that surprised me and I thought 19, you know, post 1945 we wouldn't think of that. And yet because I originally thought that the photograph was during the Great Depression, I thought that was a perfect time to set the story and And also because, like you said, speakeasies and mobsters and all these fun things from 1930s are things that I love writing about.
0: Yeah, you've written about World War II and before that and kind of all these historical times. Uh, What is it about the Great Depression and, and, you know, the 1930s that is so fun for you?
2: I absolutely love that era because I love writing about World War II. And this was, I joke, this was my big step away spreading my wings when I started going into the whole 1930s. I went a whole decade away. And right before this book, I actually wrote one called The Edge of Lost. And that one was inspired by the fact there were kids who grew up on Alcatraz Island as family of the prison staff. They weren't supposed to mix with the inmates, and some claim they secretly did. So you know you have a, a great nugget of a story right there. And that's what opened me up to the 1930s because I thought of Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, living right next door to these little kids on an island. And I thought, you can't make this stuff up. you know, It's stranger than fiction. And so because of that, I ended up staying in that era after that, because I, I love the dichotomy of the time period, that you have this really tough, struggling time for society overall. And yet you also have mobsters who are making a lot of money and people going into speakeasies and dancing all night long and you know drinking gin and and i thought what an interesting time period and also i think especially it's really relevant today to write about the 30s because we are going through some tough economic times over the last decade and will probably continue for a while and i think whenever you have characters then from the past who have gone through some of the hardest times in society or the world for world war ii and come out the other side with hope. That's always the hope of, you know, that I'm telling my stories with.
0: Hmm, That's good. So you got this idea for this story from a photo. What was it about the photo that captured you?
2: Well, I thought as a mom, immediately I had a reaction. It was pretty visceral. And I thought, how could a parent do that? Not just give up their kids because you thought they'd have a better life without you, but because you actually would ask for money in return. And I thought, what would push a parent to that point? And I, I admit, when I first saw that photo, I was really judgmental about it. And I I thought about it. It haunted me. And I went to an author breakfast a few days later. And we did the whole round robin of, you know, what are you working on next? And I said, this photo is haunting me. How could a parent do this? And we all agreed, all these women. Yeah, how could they do it? How could she do it? And one stopped and turned to me, Maggie, who's very obviously wiser than I was, and said, Christina. Christina because they wanted to eat. And I thought, you know, who am I to judge someone? And we are so quick, I think today more than ever to make those snap snap judgments based on headline news or a snippet of a video or a photograph, having no idea what the context is. And so that for me ended up being the the premise of the story, because I thought how, how easily we can misunderstand and judge when we have no idea the truth behind a photograph or someone's life.
0: So, is it normal for you to kind of save things that disturb you? I mean, this is a disturbing idea, the idea that, you know, a parent would sell their children. But is it like, do you normally go around like finding things that bother you and then saving them for story ideas? Or was that kind of a unique situation?
2: No, I think you're right. I was about to laugh because I thought, oh gosh, I think that was one time. And now, and now I'm thinking, gosh, I do really kind of save those things and files, ones that, that I think affect me one way or another, that really that move me and not necessarily maybe, hopefully not just disturb me, but that one definitely affected me as a mom, just because I think that really hit home. I have two boys and I thought, how, what would push me to that point? And so because of it, that haunted me, of course. And I think whenever there's something that sort of haunts me and i i want to know more about it but i especially the ones that i think like like with alcatraz or or some of my other stories you know finding out with my book bridge of scarlet leaves it was inspired by the fact that there were 200 non-japanese spouses who lived in the internment camps in the us voluntarily and i thought how did i not hear about this so a lot of my stories ideas that haunt me are because i think how did i not know this this seems like something we all should be aware of and i think being able to tell a story, um, I call it literary Advil, is my running joke, and that you get a sugar coating of a story on the outside. And hopefully you don't realize how much good stuff in history you're getting on the inside until it's over. And I think that's the magic of historical fiction.
0: Hmm. What would the good stuff from your story be, would you say?
2: Well, I love writing. in, In Soul on a Monday, I loved writing about the newsrooms in particular. You know, as you know, I wrote the story from the viewpoint then, which was not my original plan, of course. When I saw the photo, I immediately thought this would be a kid's point of view story. And I wanted to bring something new to the table that I hadn't seen written before. And as I dug a bit more and learned that actually in a follow-up piece about the real photograph, there are some family members who claim the photo was staged. Now, that doesn't mean that those children were not actually sold and given away and they all were within two years of the photo being published, but it did make me wonder which one came first. And mm-hmm. so that ended up being the reason why I you know changed gears and went from the reporter standpoint. So to answer your question, you know, when I when I started delving into the reporters of the nineteen thirties and looking at the newsrooms and reading all about them they were just fascinating to me yeah, and, and the competitiveness of course is there's so many things that are obviously still today very universal and truth in journalism could not be more important than of course than it is today and so i thought that would be a timely topic as well
0: you actually got to meet one of the kids that was in that photo right and became friends with them can you tell us how that happened
2: I did. There is an uh, the oldest child that is in the photograph, and actually, there are four in the photo. Like I said, and then she became she was pregnant soon after the photo was taken. So there were actually five kids that were given away or sold, and she is the oldest one. Her name is Rayanne Mills, and what happened was I wrote the whole book. I thought a lot about reaching out to her, and I was asked by then reporters, you know, have you reached out to the family? And I thought I wanted to, of course, but then you think. It's not always the, the phone call that everyone wants to get, you know, hi, I'm an author and I saw your terrible tragic photo and I wrote a book about it <laughs> and I thought, you know, and it is fictional. It's not them. It's not their story. And so I didn't want that to be confused. So eventually before the book came out, I thought I really do want to reach out. So I did and I didn't know what I would get or she didn't respond. I found her immediately on Facebook. She was the only name that came up. It was amazing. It was like we, we, were, we were definitely meant to meet And we became instant friends. And she asked me if she could fondly call it our book. And I said, of course you can, Ray, it's our book. And then we actually got to meet on the Today Show just last fall in person for the very first time, which is pretty magical. And I will tell you the part of why we went on the show and what really helped propel our friendship was that on that very first phone call, she did share that she was sold for a total of $2 so that her mother could play bingo. Now, it, it is not the compassionate story that I thought that I was hoping actually to uncover, but it is the truth of her story. And her brother was crying and didn't want to be separated from his sissy. And so the farmer who purchased him, him and his wife, they said, fine, we'll take him to for free. And they used him as farm labor on the farm. And she had an incredible, very, very sad story. Well, part of her story was that when she was 16, she was unfortunately assaulted and had a baby as a result. The man was prosecuted. That was all great news. But at 17, she had a baby. And at six months old of this this child being six months old, her foster mother, we'll call her on the farm, said that she could keep the child. And yet at six months, she invited two women into the house. And she said, they want to hold the baby, hand her over. And she handed over her, her child, her daughter, and they walked out the door and they never came back. And she asked me on that phone call, if there's any chance you could help me find her, I would be so grateful to let her know that I was that I've always loved her and she was always wanted, unlike myself. And so we set out on a search together and I've been working with genetic genealogists and D- DNA kits and everything else. And we're trying really hard in order to hopefully make that happen. <laughs> I know, it's a lot to take in, isn't it?
0: Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I think your story is one that is full of trauma and hardship but also hope and and joy even and you know a lot of your books center around children obviously this one begins with these two boys holding a sign and there are other you know children involved in the story the heroine of the novel has a young son who she had out of wedlock and all of these children are central to the story so what is it about children that you like to write about because other of your novels have had children uh, as central characters. So w- what is it about children that fascinates you?
2: It must be just being a mom, I think, because I, I didn't plan on writing books about about so many kids, and yet they keep populating my stories and becoming, even though, it, as you know, it's not their point of view, even in Sold on a Monday, which is why I love that there's a child on the front cover, because they are central to the change that happens in everybody else's lives. I mean, everybody really revolves around them. And I don't know, I, I love the personalities I can, I can put in, in the stories, but more than the book, I think, sold in money being about kids and even about motherhood, I think there is a strong motherhood theme throughout the book, but it, to me, it's also more about families. So if you look at all about relationships, and I think that's really consistent in all of my stories, even if there aren't children involved... So, it really is so much, I think, about why we act the way that we do, why we make decisions the way that we do, or act nice to someone or act rude to someone. As you know, someone cuts us off on the freeway. I like to think they're doing it for a reason. It kind of, we kind of like the onion layers and that we peel it back to where this all comes from. And I think often it comes from our familiar relationships and what changed us early on as either a parent or someone close to us and in a good or bad way. And that's a lot of what the stories are about and how we sometimes can be estranged and misunderstand things and view them different ways. And yet somehow it's still possible to come together.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of one of the characters in this novel, you know, has a very difficult relationship with his father and and a lot of misunderstanding. And there are these family secrets that sort of come to light and you understand their relationship. It's kind of hard and confusing at first and they kind of end up they go through this journey together, you know. Is that part of your story too? Like, have you had complicated relationships with some secrets w- with your family? Uh, is that come from your own life?
2: No, I don't think the secrets as much. Not that I know of. There probably are, I'm sure. But I think that <laughs> I can't imagine any family that doesn't have some complexity to it, you know. And and especially in that generation, my father is an immigrant from Kyoto originally. So although he's been an American citizen for, you know, decades and decades. He has a lot of that Japanese culture that makes it interesting in order to to communicate. You know, I think of the Latin fathers, the Greek fathers, the Italian fathers. You know, I used to live in Italy for a time, so I know that they have a lot of that similarity and that they love really hard and they can fight really hard. And they, you know, sometimes will disown people in their own families because they've offended them. and, And yet they, you know, at their core, they're all about family. And so it's, it's an interesting study sort of about those kind of fathers. And I think that ended up feeding right into this in this book. My grandfather, on my mom's side, Irish Midwest guy, funniest person I knew, and he served in World War II and whatnot. And, and he was one of those people too. I think that World War II generation that they kept a lot of the things that were hurting them, a lot of the pain, from, especially from the war, all hidden inside until often ever or until the end of their life and realizing they wanted to pass it along before it was too late. And I think there's a lot of those layers that that a lot of those dads from that generation were not aware of how they could communicate, especially with their kids.
0: So I actually found a video from one of the boys in the family, uh, pictured in that photo that we were talking about. and. He was separated from his siblings and he talks about reconnecting with them later in life and how really, like you said, how difficult their lives were, the effects of the trauma that they experienced. Um, and my mom is a therapist, so I've actually learned a lot from her about attachment theory and attachment theory is about kind of the how important these Emotional and physical connections are between parent or caregiver, especially their mother in the early part of a child's lives. And if there's a broken attachment, it's really linked with negative outcomes later in life, things like addiction and violence, difficulty with relationships, other issues. So I don't want to give too much away about your story, but the children in this story do experience trauma. They are separated from their mother And while by the end of the story, they're kind of in a stable, loving place, I wonder just if you could like project out from the story, do you see them as thriving later in life when they grown up? Like, is this a hopeful story for them?
2: I think it is. Absolutely. Because, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I will tell you this, when I wrote, set out to write the story. Part of why I wrote it the way I did and uncovered the characters and created the ones I did is because in a lot of ways, I wanted it to to reflect reality of the times, at least, you know, what some of these parents went through and the decisions they had to make. And yet I also knew the truth behind the real photograph. And that they were not compassionate reasons that I'd hoped for, like I said. So there's part of me that also wanted to create different circumstances, better circumstances for these characters, because it's my world <laughs> and my laptop. And so I definitely try to give my characters in all my books, not necessarily always a happy ending, but always a hopeful ending.
0: I've heard you say that when you have a, a story that has a happy ending, you only give it to them because the characters have worked so hard for it. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Absolutely. Oh, you did your homework. Yes. I gotta be careful what I put out there. So yeah, no, I definitely, you know, often I'll talk to high schools or creative writing classes. And one of the things that I often share is that two things. One is that I will only give a character a truly happy ending if it's because they worked so dang hard for it. And the only right thing to do for the reader, I think, and myself and that character is to give them some kind of satisfying ending because they've earned it, not just because luck of the draw, you know, and and yay, everything worked out great, even though they went through very little hardship. So if they get it, it's because they worked really hard for it. The other thing I do throughout my stories often is that, and you'll see that in The Edge of Lost, for example, a very good example is that, because I teach that one very often, and it is that if I give a character something that they really want early on, something they think they want, it's probably because I'm going to take it away pretty soon. And having something and then losing it, of course, as we all know, is almost worse, very often worse than never having it at all. And now they know what that loss is like. I'm not always nice to my characters, (laughs) but we're not supposed to be, right?
0: No, I love that. I think that points to exactly what makes good stories, characters who have worked hard for their happy ending, and they don't always get it, right? But they have to work. But I'm wondering if you think that's true for life too. I mean, is that always true in life? I mean, you can work hard for things and not always get it. But yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I definitely believe in that. And I think it's always really important to be shooting for a goal or envision something that you do want and be okay when the course of life takes you in a different direction. But you never would have. It's kind of that, you know, broke, you know, broken road and, you know, unanswered prayers idea and that, and that sometimes you don't get what you want, but you look back and think, oh my goodness, thank goodness I didn't. I often think that. I look back and think, oh, wow. For example, on a much smaller scale, of course, would be you know my first book, Letters from Home, which was inspired by my grandparents' World War II courtship letters. It was a true labor of love, and I wrote this Terrible, terrible first draft that my mother loved, (laughs) as they all should. And going through many, many drafts and getting rejections for that and getting very close though to selling. Went to acquisitions with a large publishing house, first book out of the gate, and thank goodness it did not sell. I ended up putting it in a drawer, working on something else, coming back to it, and learning more and being able to put a better... Craft spin on that book and telling it in a better way, and then the book sold right away. And I was so glad that that earlier draft had not sold, and yet I wished for anything that it would, you know, at the time. And now I look back and think, oh, thank goodness for myself and those poor readers that would have had to endure <laughs> that early draft. So sometimes, you know, that I never plan to be a writer either, and that's one thing that you know, so strange and shocking that I'm in this spot. i will talk to people like you, is because. I was barely a reader 12 years ago, and I do not say that <laughs> as a recommendation or with any amount of pride, but I've always been a storyteller, and I learned to tell it in a different form. You know, I, was, I grew up in the film industry, so I learned how to then put it on paper in such a way that hopefully the reader would see something close to the same movie in my head as I was you. And so that's, that's actually, you know, one of those things that I look back and think, you know, I never would have thought that I'd be a writer. It wasn't anything I would have ever planned on. And yet I'm so grateful for those little chance encounters that happen that we think that, that completely alter our lives.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Right Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Right Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book novel, short story or poem or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in, and The Right Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for The Right Practice Pro at therightpractice.com/join. So the main heroine of this story, Lily, is a secretary. At a newspaper. She's a fantastic writer. She's a really great journalist, but she's kind of stuck as an assistant because of her gender and because it's the 1930s. There's this amazing scene later in the story where she's kind of been dismissed a couple of times by her boss when she's asked to write. But then she pitches this idea to write a column and her editor can't say no and she's offered this job finally kind of overcoming all the bias against her. And obviously, gender roles have loosened since the 1930s, but the publishing industry has something of a reputation as a place that favors male authors. This is your fifth novel. You've been publishing books since 2001, right? And 12 years, like you said, as a novelist. Has the publishing industry changed since you started writing? And have you ever had to overcome any bias or challenges like Lily did?
2: So I don't feel that way right now. Just, I mean, I think I've been really fortunate, but I definitely understand what you're talking about and what other authors talk about as far as, you know, the male authors being be more favored to traditionally and say getting the large reviews in the magazines or the newspapers, et cetera. But, but I also know that the females tend to dominate more of the publishing industry. So I find that fascinating because the, you know, every, there's so many people I've worked with in publishing field have all been women, the publicist, my editor now, and even now the CEO of, of the publishing house I'm working with now is just source books, which I absolutely love. So, so I think that is a really, really neat thing. And, and, and I think that it, the more that we talk about those things in any industry, the more that we can help solve them. So I, I think it's, everything has been going in a really good direction.
0: That's awesome. So you thought that this book would be a complete flop right? Um, (laughs) And then it was on the New York Times bestsellers list for five months, which is insane. It blew up. But you got a review before it came out that was kind of critical of the story and you were 100% sure that it was going to be a huge mistake. Can you talk about that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it had gone out on a website called NetGalley where early readers, bloggers, librarians, really any just voracious readers who, who like to review a lot on any site can sign up for books and, and they can get an early peek. And so the first couple, I think it was the first two that got to read it at all, ended up posting something to the effect of, you know, they really enjoyed the story, but, had, but were very disappointed in that they thought they were getting orphan trained too. You know, They thought this would be from the kid's point of view, and they didn't understand why I would write it from a reporter's standpoint. And and of course, as you know, if I'm reading the book, there are a lot of twists and turns that come from that point of view, and something that I thought was telling a different story, because I didn't want to write Orphan Train 2. Christina Baker Klein, who wrote that fabulous book, already did such a great job, and I thought I wanted to do something different and yet, it's very, you know, so easy to be confident of your choices, you know, until those first reviews come out, of course, and the first couple since then, they've been wonderful, but but I had a couple that right from the get-go that did question why I wrote it from that viewpoint, and I thought more of the trend would have been writing from the kid's point of view, and I thought oh my gosh, it was a mistake. This is just a sneak peek of what's to come. Everyone's going to hate it. They'll be so disappointed. And I ended up calling my husband and saying, I think this was a very bad idea. I'm going to write the next book, which is already on contract. As fast as possible, so we can all forget this book ever happened. And, you know, it's a good lesson. Number one, it means tells us, reminds me that we really have no idea what we're doing, any of us. And, and secondly, that of course it's a good reminder to write what you believe in and what you're passionate about and not trying to chase the trends because we rarely can catch up to them anyway.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Well, I love this book. And I remember kind of two thirds of the way through thinking like, this has to end soon. Like, we're kind of getting toward some great solutions. Everyone's going to be happy. And then it just like totally goes off the rails and the mob gets involved. And it looks like everything is going to be ruined. And it was just so exciting, kind of like took it up another level. And I don't know, I mean, how do you write like that? I mean, it's kind of a weird question, but it feels like at the end, you really like took it up a notch. Was that your plan, or I don't know? I don't. I didn't even know that's a question. I think it was just awesome.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I love that. Oh, and I love revisiting the story with you. It's so fun. I how I thought of this book in particular was like a roller coaster ride, and I've had other readers tell me they thought of it the same way. It has that that click 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 build up in the beginning that that sometimes too you might wonder as you know that you think how is where is this going how is this going to be important and then realizing later all of those pieces become very important to the story and it has that it kind of takes off and then right when you think the roller coaster is slowing down it has that that last final dip of course and, and I hope that it stays that way until the very end until the finish line the reason of course that I incorporated the mobsters and all that in the story well, first of all some of those guys came from the edge of lost from the Alcatraz story and I got to bring some of them back again and That's I love cool. them much. They were fun to revisit. But secondly, because I think at the time in 1930s, the mobsters were so involved and entrenched into the business community. And and I had done a lot of research on that for the books before. So having them as part of the story made a lot of sense when you're in the news industry. Those reporters would often trade tips back and forth. For story ideas and whatnot, so that would, that did not come out of nowhere, and I thought, well, it really makes a lot of sense to have them in the story. So that's where those ideas came from, and and it was so fun to just kind of keep ratcheting it up, you know. I think of it as a movie. So all of my books, I think of as movies in my head as I mentioned. And so if they read cinematically, that's the reason why, but that's how I think of the films going. So, you know, right when you think it's calming down and it really kind of takes it up to a whole new notch and, and you have that black moment of, you know, all, all hope is lost and how will they <laughs> get out of this? Like every James Bond film ever, you know? Yeah. And, and then hopefully there's some kind of solution at the end.
0: Yeah. So I think we're shocked today about the idea of parents selling their children because they couldn't feed them or take care of them. I have two boys and a daughter and I, I like you, had a really visceral reaction to the photo and to the beginning of this story, which I guess points to your skill as a writer. You really know how to twist the knife at the start. And I think we're so shocked about this idea, but right now, Uh, As I'm sure you know, like our government has hundreds of children who have been separated by their parents from their parents at the Mexican border. And regardless about politics, I think we can all be upset about the level of trauma that those kids are experiencing. So as a storyteller who writes about children in traumatic situations, how do you feel when you hear about kids going through situations like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm affected just like everybody else, whether I'm a writer or not, just as a, as a parent, I think that affects me more than anything. And, you know, some of the, I mean, you bring up a really good point that, and that in politics aside, you know, that that's something that is just very human, that we can look at that and think this isn't right. There has to be a solution somehow. And, and no matter what feeling for the families that are trying to just make a better life for their children. And trying the best that they know how. And, you know, and then logistics come into it and, and politics comes into it. Um, but I think we can all agree we need to find a better solution. And so one of the things that was interesting with this book in particular, it wasn't until after the book came out, and I've spoken to hundreds of book clubs through the years and especially about this book, And when they came back and said, you know, we really enjoyed talking about these topics in our book club, such as, you know, mental illness, separation of families, immigrants, et cetera. And they went through this whole list and poverty and truth and journalism. And I knew that one was relevant, but the rest I thought, oh yes, I'm so insightful. (laughs) And you think I'm so smart. I wasn't really thinking about those things of how relevant they were today. I just wrote my story. And what of course it reminded me after the book, and when they brought those up, is that how all of these topics that we talk about in our stories are things that have happened in the past. We are not reinventing anything new in that way in these, these themes and these subjects that we need to talk about. And they aren't topics that usually probably should not bring up at every cocktail party if you want to be invited back. And yet it's such a great way, especially in book clubs, to be able to talk about these things that are very important. And the more that we talk about them, especially through novels, I think is a really great outlet for that then the hopefully closer we'll be to finding a solution.
0: And I think too, like these kinds of situations feel so hopeless right now. And just as, you know, the situation of the photograph felt hopeless. And part of a writer's role is to bring hope to those stories. And you've done that here. And I think you can give us hope. And as writers, we can give people hope that there are happy endings out there and we might have to work for it, uh, but they exist.
2: Absolutely, i love that. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And that's why I love reading myself too. See, I am a reader now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an absolutely voracious reader now, as I should have been a long time ago. But those are the things, the stories that I love reading about. I I absolutely love, and I think that's pretty universal. I think most most people do enjoy reading the inspired by a true story, whether it's a, a book or a movie. And very often those are ones that at the end come out with so much hope and overcoming obstacles they thought that they couldn't possibly overcome. And I think that really touches a lot of us. The reason why we're drawn to those movies and those books is because we can see ourselves going through different circumstances and we have that hope. Otherwise, um, it's very, very difficult to overcome them.
0: Yeah, so true. So last question, what is your favorite character from a novel novel? Or a film?
2: Oh, goodness. From from mine or anyone's? Anyone's. Oh, goodness. That is a hard question. Oh, let's see here. Now, okay. I will say the first one that comes to mind, because obviously there are yeah. there are so many. Uh, I will say favorite character from, did you say a book or a movie or you say just a book? I don't uh, Probably. And this is just fresh of mind because my, my youngest son and I Uh, love reading together, but we also love watching movies together. And uh, we just recently rewatched the Hunger Games series. And so because of that, I would have to say Katniss. Yeah, she's, she's one of my favorites.
0: That's awesome. What is it about Katniss that you love?
2: So I think she reflects a lot of the characters I like to write about. You know, she is one of those people that is, is fighting for something that is very personal, that is her family. And so it has a lot of those familial roots and, and is the ordinary person put in extraordinary circumstances and going against impossible odds, and yet somehow comes out on the other side and doing it in the right way, you know, because obviously, you know, get pretty ugly in order to to get to the finish line, which a lot of the characters in that series do. And she's not one of them, someone who has integrity and a moral a strong moral compass.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Christina sold on a Monday is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can also follow Christina on Facebook and Twitter and look for Christina Morris, McMorris, Christina with a K. Thank you so much, Christina.
2: Thank you so much. This was so fun.
0: It was fun. Thanks. All right, let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Christina's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, what was your takeaway?
1: I loved that line that she said when she was discussing how she thinks about characters and creates characters where she said, I only give a character a true happy ending if they worked so dang hard for it that they really have to earn it. I think that in stories, that makes stories interesting and that makes stories feel satisfying that characters have worked for their happy endings and have not just fallen into them. And as she was saying that, I started thinking about my own life too and what areas in my life am I working hard for happy endings? And in what areas am I not working hard for happy endings, but just hoping that, Happy endings are on their way, regardless of my effort.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally relate to that. And I would say that that's my major takeaway too from this story. I mean, the character in this story has to do some very uncomfortable things, uh, very sleep depriving things, some things that would make me feel very uncomfortable. And I mean, he does earn it. The heroine of the novel earns it too. But I guess, you know, that question of like, what am I doing? How am I working hard? What kind of discomfort, what courageous decisions am I making to get a happy ending? I think that's an important question. Are we fighting for our happy endings or are we kind of just allowing ourselves to go with the flow and live in the status quo? Like, are we going to fight for it and kind of endure those hard things?
1: Yeah, like that concept of working for a happy ending, of choosing to challenge yourself, to push yourself, to put yourself in uncomfortable spaces, uncomfortable situations in order to get to a happy ending because it's not just going to fall into your lap. I think that that was really honestly inspiring to me and kind of encouraging when I think about some of the spaces where that's true in my own life. Yeah. What was your takeaway?
0: Well, I mean, that was my main one. You stole it from me as usual. <laughs> but I also like what she said about how if, she, if a character got what he, what he or she wanted early in the story, she would make sure to take that thing away. And I think that's a powerful thing. I mean, I, I think we have all seen examples of that happen in our lives and in you know, the world. And it's just like, you know, a a danger of early success. It can make you feel like you don't have to work for things. You don't have to put in that hard work for your happy ending.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of um, Stephen Sondheim musicals of, uh, for instance, Into the Woods, where the first half, it's all this fairy tale kind of storytelling, and the first act is all of the things go well and they get their happy ending and everything's perfect. And then I started thinking halfway through, where's the story going to go? Oh, the second act is when it turns everything upside down and it reveals, Oh, all these things that you thought you wanted, all these things that were good, either they're getting taken away or they're getting twisted around, or you're having consequences that come with them so that everything is not perfect and lovely because you've gotten everything you wanted.
0: Yeah. This is a secret about storytelling, by the way, if Everything is going right for the character. If they're having the best day of their lives in a film or a book, just get ready for like something to go spectacularly wrong Uh, because writers and screenwriters, storytellers always use that technique of like pulling the rug out from under characters. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Unless that happens on the very last page, then something or someone is in danger.
0: (laughs) So that's your character test challenge. Think of one hard thing you're going to do this week to get your happy ending. Then send it to us at charactertestshow at gmail.com so we can hear what it is. And that's it. That's our show. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music. Don't forget to go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 13 for your free prize. Have a great week, everyone.